0: Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone.
2: Welcome, welcome, welcome back to the Bob Sex Podcast. My guest today is musician and director, Kevin Godley. Kevin, good to have you on the program. Good to
3: be here, Bob. Nice to see you. Happy New Year.
2: So where exactly are you right now?
3: I am um, in a little town about 40 minutes outside Dublin in a conservatory, which is my office and my studio.
2: So what is a nice boy from the midlands of uh, England doing in Dublin? Uh, That's a good question. I I did quite a lot of uh, video
3: work here uh, in the late nineties, early and late nineties with you too. And I was going backwards and forwards and backwards and forwards a lot with my wife. And we fell in love with the place, It is at least back then, it was so radically different to living outside London that we fell in love with it. Everything is quiet here, you can get to meet interesting people in the art world much easier than you could in London, Um, and we were looking to move house anyway, and we thought, why not? Let's give it a shot. So here we are, and we haven't regretted it for one second.
2: And how long have you been there? And you could go a little
3: bit deeper into the differences. Gosh, I think we've been here for about 14 years. Uh, The difference, I guess, is London is a very busy city, always has been. And if you want to make a meeting with somebody, you call up their PA and they say, well, you know, so-and-so has a, a window for 20 minutes next Thursday. Here, you bump into someone who knows his uncle and you can meet him in the pub next saturday night. It's it's much more it's much less formal here. Everybody is so much more accessible here. And is there work there like there is in London? There is for me. <laughs> it's no different. I mean the the main difference between working here and in London has changed so vastly over the years because a lot of what a lot of what I can do is done remotely anyway. If there's a shoot to be done in London, for instance, then I travel to London and I have a production team there that I use. Obviously, I haven't been able to do that for a little while, but I also have a production team here. And if I'm lucky enough, the artist will come here and we can shoot here. So it, it's, it's been really been really good. In other words, I have a lovely, gentle and quiet lifestyle, but I can move to wherever is appropriate for when I have to be somewhere.
2: What's been keeping you busy recently, Kevin? Recently? Oh, gosh. You've been in the last two or three years or so? Yes, because, you know, and how you've been affected by COVID.
3: Well, I haven't really been affected by COVID, um, which is a strange thing to say. I mean, both myself and my wife have, haven't had COVID. We know a few people who have, but we live a very quiet life, and I do most of my work from home anyway. Um, but probably one of the main things that I did in twenty twenty, I released my first solo album, which was recorded here called Muscle Memory, um, which was an exciting thing for me to do. I'd never made a solo album before. Um, and that was that was a big thrill. that was a big thrill. I got extremely well reviewed, uh, which was which was a buzz. I also co-wrote and directed a pilot episode for a historical drama podcast about Irish music. Um, I started experimenting with a system I call Corrupted Files, which is, for want of a better term, accidental artwork uh, that's derived from my video work, and started exploring NFT and physical options for both. Also, in 2021, I joined a new games company called Athena, Athena Worlds, which is led by um, an extremely well-known gaming programmer called Jane Whittaker. He did Alien vs. Predator and also a senior producer from Candy Crush called Emily Amphlett. Anyone in the gaming industry will know who they are immediately. Uh, And they're driven by um, new revolutionary tech, which hopefully will revolutionize the games industry. Uh, And I'm a non-exec director and creative consultant for Athena. I've also recently joined a fascinating company called Group of Humans, which is very, very contemporary company. They are a community of industry-leading strategists, filmmakers, musicians, designers, writers, creative directors, researchers, etc. Um, we're like a herd of cattle, although we're not cattle. We're all very, very clever and very smart. But the idea is that any any group of these people can be selected for any particular project that comes in um, to create. The perfect group to deliver high quality outcomes for a diff- for a range of different kind of clients. We work remotely, and I've never been involved in anything like this before. I um, towards the end of last year, I was I was frustrated, and the, the, there are so many things that I do, and I have uh, a finger in so many different creative pies. I was looking for either a person or an organisation to to kind of represent all the different aspects of my career and this group of people got in touch with me via a guy who I've met before a number of years ago a lovely guy called Rob Noble who invited me to become part of group of humans and it is it is a great it's a great bunch of people a great bunch of people I can't tell you what we're doing because we're all under NDAs but it's it's a real buzz it's it, it allows me to explore the more commercial side of what I'm capable of doing.
2: Okay, before we leave Dublin, I have to address the situation with Ireland, which is divided in Brexit. What's your whole take on Brexit and how it should work out? It's a fucking nightmare. <laughs> I never understood the
3: point of it, ever. I mean... <sighs> I don't know, it's crazy. I'm not a very politically minded p- person, but I, I, I kind of don't see the point of it. It's, it's divisive on a very day-to-day level. If you order anything online, um, we used to be able to get loads of stuff that we can no longer get now from, from the UK. Um, and you have to pay extra tax when it comes into the country. It takes twice as long. I mean, that's the immediate effect of it.
2: And it's just boring. I, I don't get it. Okay, let's go back a few years. How did you ultimately get into video directing? Sort of by accident, like most things
3: in my life. Um, as you know, we were, we were in a band, quite a successful band. And when Lol Cream and I left the band, we were still making records, but we weren't a touring band. So we never appeared anywhere live. We never did any shows. But we had a record coming out and a single that was called An Englishman in New York, not to be confused with the song of the same name by Sting. And we kind of figured that the only way we we could promote it would be to make a little film of us performing it in some way. And we didn't think for one minute that the record company would go for the idea because back then there was no video industry as such, there was no MTV, but we came up with a sort of cockeyed storyboard and went to meet somebody at the label and lo and behold they said yes you can make it, but you can't direct it because you you don't know a camera from a camel so we'll have to get a proper guy in to do that, which, which they did and during the process of making the film, a couple of light bulbs went off over our heads. It was an extraordinary experience. We were ex art students, as you probably know, and, and suddenly we were involved in something that we instinctively felt we could contribute to. We could do this, we thought. And much to the director's annoyance through the editing process, we started to stick our oar in and suggest things and, 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 and say, well, what happens if you press this button? And you go, no, no, and we press a button and something interesting would happen that nobody expected. In other words, we, we kind of took over, uh, which must have been a, a pain um, for the director, for the proper director, but we knew that this was a very exciting thing um, to be involved with. So we put, we were performing, which took up most of the day, and we were listening, and we were watching, and we were learning. And that was the first thing we kind of did. Um, and we got a lot of credit for it, because the finished result made the hit, made the record a hit, not in the UK, but all over Europe.
2: Do you remember the budget and do you remember where it was exhibited and people became aware of it? It was shown a lot in Europe, um, all over
3: Europe, and it was a hit record in Europe. I can't remember the budget, but it can't have been a lot of money. There wasn't a lot of money around in those days for these things. So what actually happened from there is a guy called Steve Strange who was just signed to our label, Polydor, with his band called Visage. Is the same Steve Strange who recently passed? Yes, unfortunately, yes. Uh, we knew Steve from the clubs in London, and and he wanted us to direct his first video uh, for his first single for Visage, which was called Fade to Gray. And which is a lovely compliment. I think he had to argue the point somewhat with the label, but we got to do it. The budget for that, I distinctly remember as being £5,000, 2500 of which went to the makeup artist. But that was our first professional gig as, as, as video directors, and, and the rest is... It's history.
2: Okay, well, as I say, let's go a little slower into the rest. So you make that video, you did one for your own act, it was very successful. What happened with this video? Uh,
3: Well, it it did the trick. Um, It proved the point that uh, a good film or a good video or whatever they used to call it in those days could make a difference. Uh, and it was a hit in, in Norway, Sweden, Denmark, Scandinavia, France, in Germany, but didn't do a damn thing in England, which was such a shame. <laughs> but it taught us a hell of a lot. It, 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 it flipped the switch for us because we'd left the band and we were making records, and I think subconsciously we were looking for something else that we could get our teeth into. And this came along at just the right time.
2: Now, where in the history of MTV does this happen?
3: Quite early. We're talking the early 80s. Um, and I think we made an Englishman in New York before MTV became a reality anyway. Um, I think MTV launched, was it 1982? It? No, August 1st, 1981. 1981. Okay, so we were relatively close. We were relatively close. I think in Englishman in New York, though, was towards the end of the 70s. But Visage...
2: I guess what I'm asking here is, did you see MTV on the horizon when it happened? Did it change your vision? Did it create a lot of opportunity?
3: Totally. We didn't see it coming, and then we heard about it. We heard about it launching in America first, which it did, of course. And we started to get some interesting commissions um, from America. Probably the most significant one was uh, for Herbie Hancock, Rocket. Um, And things began to change radically from that point, not just for us, but for the whole music industry. Um, From our perspective and from all the other directors and producers that were working in this new medium, it suddenly meant that there was a global art gallery where all their work could be seen. There had been nothing like this before, ever. So, the other thing that I think was hugely influential was that a lot of the more critically acclaimed and influential films on MTV were coming out of the UK and the stylistic elements of those films made an impact on everything that was made from that point on and a lot of a lot of bands a lot of american bands particularly were a little bit uncomfortable with this they they were purists they were musicians man we don't want to make films we don't want to tell stories we just want to play there was there was a little bit of resistance to that initially uh, and But things gradually began to change. They began to accept it and take it on board and really use it well. It took a little time, though, for it to sink in.
2: Let's talk about Rocket. So how did you, that's a legendary video. How did you come up with the concept? And ultimately, this became your main work. So at what point did it become lucrative? What were the budgets? Rocket was an interesting one. Again, just a series of
3: lucky accidents, I was watching uh, a, a TV news program, local TV news program, um, and they were showing a piece about uh, a sculptor, an artist called Jim Whiting and his work, uh, which were these strange hydraulic robots. And it was probably about a five minute piece. And as soon as it started on the TV, I dived at the, uh, the video recorder and taped what I could of it because I found it absolutely fascinating. And something was was wonderful about it, inc- incredible. Um, but before then, the Rocket track had landed on our desk asking us to come up with an idea for it. So when I saw this and took the videotape over to Lowell's place, we, we realized that Rocket sounded like this looked Okay. There was there was no doubt in our minds about that, and and back then, things were relatively free. There was no marketing department. There was no there was no real awareness of the power of video. These were just films that were made, and nobody really knew if they'd make any difference or not to the success of a record. So how it worked was. You sent a track to a director whose work you liked and asked them to make a film and gave them a little bit of money to do it. You were never asked to compete with other directors or send in a written treatment. You'd maybe have a conversation or two, but we were allowed to do pretty much what the hell we liked. And we had enough faith in the idea to actually set it up and go for it, uh, we had Herbie fly over for a day, and we filmed him separately uh, because we knew we'd be putting him into the finished film in a TV monitor. <clears throat> but nobody, including us to a degree, understood at that stage what the finished film would look like. We were we were just busking, but we were busking with confidence. It was really only when we hit the edit suite with all this vast amount of material. And I say vast, because back then you couldn't play the, the material backwards. You had, to, you had to retransfer all the film to video backwards, all the footage. You couldn't hit a button and it would go backwards. So we had an enormous amount of footage. And I think the edit was probably about an, an 18 to 20 hour edit, solid, in an edit suite, a very smoky edit suite. Um, And when we finished it, we looked at it and we looked at each other and we said, they're going to fucking kill us. (laughs) Because, I mean, from our perspective, it it was extraordinary. Um, But there'd been nothing like that shown anywhere before. And so we we were you know we thought, you know, fuck it, <laughs> let's send it to them and 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 see what happens, and predictably, it was like they 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 didn't quite understand what they were watching, if that makes any sense um but they didn't know they had something. What they didn't know, and what we didn't know, is that that something was going to turn out to be something significant uh, in kicking the medium forward. And we won a lot of awards at the first MTV show for that one particular video. It was, um, and it taught us that, you know, believe in your instincts. You know what you're doing, even though you don't know that you know what you're doing. (laughs) You do know something that they don't know. So just keep doing this because you're good at it.
0: This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of
1: Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply.
2: Let's go back a couple of years. Tell me the story of the making of the video for Duran Duran's "Girls on Film."
3: They're they're a very clever bunch of guys, still are, um, and as is their management. They they were very savvy in um, in wanting to break America. They. Were keeping an eye on what was going on in the clubs as well as what was going on in TV. And what was going on in the clubs was that they were playing these newfangled video things in the clubs, and some of them were kind of uncensored because there, were no, there was no censorship in the clubs. The rauncher they were, the more daring they were, the weirder they were, the more they get played. And so as part of the brief for Girls on Film... Um, we were told to create a version that was to be played in clubs, primarily in clubs. So they were kind, in, kind of coming at America from underneath, not from in front. Uh, so that's what we did. It just so happened that that and 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 the the TV cut was a little tame, as you know, but the uh, the full version was kind of probably wouldn't get made today. It was very sexy, very raunchy, very daring for its time. And the word started to spread as that sometimes happens. And it was all part of this this growth, this strange upheaval that was going on in the music business. People were getting excited about the power of, of the music video and it became a thing. How'd you end up working with the police? Um, we, we used to record in the same studio strangely enough um, near where, where Lowell lived at the time in a place called Leatherhead which sounds like a heavy metal man. um, a little studio um, called Sorry Sound which was run by a guy who was producing the police at the time and they were working there and we'd kind of meet every now and again. We'd finish a session, they'd start a session, and when we came into our first album, As Godly and Cream, Nigel, Nigel Gray was the guy I'm talking about. He, he played us the stuff he'd been recording with the police. And... It kind of made our hair stand upon it. And Just three people playing and singing, whereas we were messing around with all sorts of peculiar sounds and and synths and good knows what. Um, there were these three guys that were that were that had it, that magic stuff that everybody wants to find. And that's kind of where we met them. And at this point, we we this was prior to us getting into music video, really. Um But when when they'd made it big and they wanted to change their style on film, they called us. Um, They were doing hugely well all over the world and in America. And the album that uh, Every Breath You Take was on, they wanted to present it in a more sophisticated way, a more interesting way. Uh, and they asked us if we'd be interested in making a film for it, and of course we were. The interesting thing is that we were all, they were thinking along a certain line, and we were thinking along certain lines, but we never really got together to talk about it uh, until we flew over to LA to meet them at the record label. And all our ideas kind of coalesced the idea of doing it in black and white, the idea of holding on things for an enormous amount of time, as opposed to cutting every second, which most videos did at the time, was exactly where they wanted to go. Something that was subtle, something that was delicate, something that was powerful. Um, It was an extraordinary, uplifting experience for us and a, a huge kick up the ladder. There were a number of of shoots around about that time and there was Herbie, there was Every Breath You Take. In fact we did two more for the police on the same album. But that was a big kick in the bum for us up the ladder. That made us for want of a better description video stars. Not something we were aiming to be, but it made us significant in the medium.
2: And how did that change your life and career?
3: Um made us feel good. <laughs> uh the budgets got a little bit bigger. Um And it gave us a little bit more weight in terms of presenting ideas to people. Um, I think the industry was starting to understand, um, at least the marketing people within the industry were were beginning to understand the power of a music video and how it could actually help uh, a single become a hit. And therefore when they came to us they they knew if they were coming to us we weren't going to do what they told us to do and we were trusted to a degree to deliver them something a that was original that was different but had a quality that was going to help the record be a success and we used to push that home that was that was the buzz for us in a sense It, it wasn't It wasn't about the success. It it was about being allowed to try something that we would dearly like to see on the screen. And sort of, shall we say, eight times out of ten,
2: it did the job. How did you feel when you'd make a successful video for an act, and then they would end up working with somebody else for the next video? Um.
3: It didn't happen that often, at least not initially, uh, particularly in the police's case. We, we did Every Breath and we did the following two videos. But I think what was happening, the industry as an industry was, was maturing and more people uh, were coming into the industry, more directors were realizing that, you know, as well as the commercials that they did, as well as the films that they did, this was an area where they could be free or a little freer and everything else, and they could try some bizarre ideas out that they may not be able to try in some of the other areas of their work. So I wouldn't say it was becoming crowded, but it was becoming populated with a lot of different kinds of directors. And so there was more choice for people. And also, don't forget at the time, because labels and management people were, were now understanding the power of the music video, they were thinking, okay, well, this is a great song. Who can we go to? There's this guy, there's, there's this team, there's Godling Cream, there's so-and-so and there's so-and-so. the And they had a number of showreels to look at. And they could then choose who they would like to make their film. And they could also go to more than one set of individuals and say, listen, guys, (laughs) this is how much money we have. Come up with an idea for this, and we will choose the winner to make the film. It was becoming exactly what you would expect a successful industry to become.
2: So you made these uh, videos with LOL how do you split up the responsibilities? What did he do? What did you do?
3: We kind of both did everything, which was kind of messy sometimes. But it was, I think if everything we did in, in in music video, we approached pretty much the same way as we would if we were making a record or if we were writing a song. There was no, the lines were blurred between the two of us. Um, and it worked for a time. It worked really, really well. Um, it was only later, towards the end of our relationship, where we, we both had different kinds of ideas that we wanted to do, that it became a little bit of a problem. But the initial push, the initial few years during the 1980s, was was extremely productive and extremely joyful. It was We had a blast, I have to tell you. It was an absolute blast.
2: When it ended with Loll, was it on bad terms? Do you have any contact with him today?
3: Not really. We've we've kind of we've grown apart. You know, it's it's. I think I've been working longer without Loll than I was working with lol Now, oh, it's so long ago. Um, we've grown apart. I mean, all the members of the original band have kind of grown apart. It's funny. I think you know when you're young and you're a band and you're starting off together there's a gang mentality it's 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 you against the world and the most important thing in your lives is the band the success of the band and the quality of the music that you make and that's all that's all that counts but gradually as you grow into yourself as you become older and you make new friends and you have new experiences you develop you develop as a person and i you know That's what happened between me and Lyle. We became different people with different tastes. And it happens. Okay, let's go back to the beginning. Where did you grow up? Uh, I grew up um, in Manchester, outside Manchester. Um, I was a quiet, lonely kid. Didn't have many friends. The only thing that I could do well... Uh, and enjoyed doing was was drawing pencil sketching. And I used to do that whenever I could. I used to take a sketchbook and pencil and jump over the wall into Heaton Park, which was directly opposite to where we lived, and spend an afternoon sitting on a bench drawing. Um, and I think it was it was during that period that occasionally people would, would wander over and have a look at what I was doing and say that's really good that's really really good well done congratulations that's fantastic work and in a bizarre way that was my first audience i suddenly i understood that people liked something that i was doing uh, and although they weren't applauding they were saying nice things so that was that was hugely significant to me
2: and what did your parents do for a living, and how many kids in the family?
3: Just me. Um, my father had a number of shops in the centre of Manchester. He was a shopkeeper. and he sold he sold radios, tape recorders, records, camera equipment. Uh, he also sold telescopes. And he also sold musical instruments, all in different shops, and camping equipment. Strangely enough, um, so the, the weird thing is, you know, I, he wanted me to go into the family business, of course, and I I hated it. I used to help out at the shops on a Saturday behind the till, you know, try and demonstrate things. I was hopeless at that, and and you know, uh, but. Looking back, what's really strange to me is even though I didn't want to go into the family business, all the things that he sold, other than camping equipment, are areas that I ended up investigating and became becoming part of in my grown-up careers. Cameras, tape recorders, televisions, <laughs> musical instruments. It's the strangest thing.
2: What was it like being in the UK when the Beatles hit... And all those bands, and some of them were from Liverpool, not that far from Manchester. What was the experience through your eyes?
3: It was, it was like being part of something important. I think that if you were a, a teenager before the Beatles came along and you were sort of playing a musical instrument uh, or in any kind of band, it, nobody really took you very seriously. Um, it only seemed to become significant once the Beatles had made an impact. Then it, then it was, there was some strange cultural upheaval that took place. I remember leaping, you know, leaping a good few years forward. I remember I'd, I'd been home for a weekend and uh, I got a train back to art to college and Sergeant Pepper had just come out. And I walked into the art college and every single department of the art college had stopped work. And each department was playing a different track from the album. And the tutors weren't teaching anybody. They were pouring over the gatefold album sleeve. Everybody was marveling at this wonder that had come out of nowhere. And that was huge for me. It 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 just changed everything. Um, you can imagine walking into this building and hearing all these tracks at the same time. It was like Revolution Number no. 9 coming out the windows. Um, but that made a huge difference, and I was in a band while I was at art college, and we were doing gigs pretty much every every alternate night. I'd get picked up at the end of a working day at college and go off in a van and do a gig, come back late at night and then go to college the next day. So suddenly just being in a band wasn't just a buzz. It was a possible thing that could become something significant should you want it to be
2: so. So how did you start playing musical instrument?
3: Like many kids of that era, people wanted to play music. Music was a big outlet then, um, before the Beatles, before anything wanted to play everybody wanted to play a guitar or something or other. I think it was like skateboards or video games are now. It was a thing. And it wasn't necessarily because you could make a career out of it. It was, you know, because it made you feel made you look cool, you could meet girls, made you feel something. And it made you feel like you were doing something that was about you and it was about your generation. Where it would go, nobody really knew, but it it was a way of stamping your identity on something. And I took up a guitar first. I had a Hofner Club 50, six-string guitar, semi-solid body. And I was terrible. I joined a group called Group 17 and played bass on a six-string guitar very badly. And we used to do covers of a band called The Shadows who used to back Cliff Richard in the UK and we used to play things like old people's homes and private parties and whatever we could get. But we were terrible, but there was something amazing about the experience and I I shifted to drums because um, my next door neighbour... Uh, my next door neighbor's family were quite wealthy had bought, his name was Jeff had bought him a drum set um, and sorry Jeff but, but he couldn't play it and um, and I just I wanted to try playing his drums and it took me ages to get him to allow me to sit down behind the, the kid and I I had that sort of independent suspension thing that you need to play drums, you know? And I could sort of do the cymbal and do the snare and do the, the the bass drum and the hi-hat and hit things in reasonable ways. And that was incredible. It something clicked and said, Wow, you don't have to pose dancing and trying to play a guitar at the front of a band. You can sit in the back and be in the engine room. And and then I remembered something that happened when I was a child, probably about nine or ten years old. We used to have music lessons at school. And a music lesson consisted of a teacher coming in and putting a record on a record deck and asking you to listen to it. And they'd disappear for half an hour and you should come back and you'd have to talk about it and say so whether you thought it was any good or not. And there were, you know, little operettas and classical music. And, you know, to a kid who's nine and ten, it's a bit boring. But one day, she put on an Elvis track. And I started hammering away on the school desk. And I've no idea why, and I've no idea where the hell that came from, but I was banging the school desk like I would have drunk it. And I was thrown out of the class. and made to stand in the corridor for about half an hour. It was a punishment for the thing that I'd eventually do for a living. Um, But I loved
2: playing the drums.
3: (laughs) That's how it began.
2: Now you're in a band in art school. How do you end up becoming professional and starting to make records?
3: Well, the the band that I was in at art college was called The Mockingbirds. and, And The Mockingbirds, had Graham Gouldman as their leader. Graham was already relatively successful as a songwriter by then, and I was the drummer of The Mockingbirds. And we actually recorded some of the tracks that went on to be big hits with other bands. We never had a hit. It was, it was really very, very strange. But I, it wasn't like I'd set out to be a professional musician. It was always something that was traveling, parallel to what I was doing in order to become something professionally and that at the time was being a a graphic designer Uh, at art college I was studying to be a professional graphic designer but it was not in any way shape or form as much fun as travelling around in a van playing drums in a band and we'd spend when I say we that's myself and Noel Cream we'd spend our weekends writing songs recording them on a two track tape recorder Uh, And dreaming about becoming a band. And I guess it kind of matured when Eric Stewart, uh, who'd now become the leader of a a band called The Mindbenders, decided he wanted to set up a professional recording studio in Manchester, which at the time, and looking back, was a ludicrous idea because the center of the recording industry in the UK was in London. But he wanted to do this in Manchester. He raised the money, found a building, and they built a recording studio. Small place, but with a good room, good control room. And because we moved in similar circles, we were asked to be, myself and Law, we were asked to be the two guys who came in that would allow him to test the equipment. And, you know, I would sit there and hammer away at the drums. They'd multitrack the drums, and I was sort of sit opposite me on the floor strumming away on something, and before we knew it, you know, during this testing period, we'd recorded something that sounded quite interesting. It turned out to be this thing called Neanderthal Man. Um, that we had to record again because once we'd gone home during one of the test days, someone wiped the tape that we'd been recording up, and we had to start from scratch. But um, we learned something and we recorded this thing called Neanderthal Man that was a number two hit record in the UK. And it was like, you know, it just came out of just doing it as opposed to planning to do it. And usually, that's
2: the best way. And so how did it ultimately become 10cc? Uh, Lakes didn't last very long. We, we made an album.
3: We did a tour. But we made the fatal error of not understanding how the business works. Neanderthal Man was a very strange piece of music, if it even qualifies for being a piece of music. But the album and it's interesting this, because the the album was like, okay, we're going to make an album, and this is going to be real music. But of course, if if you're young, and you're starting, and you're making music, it's, it's almost inevitable that you're going to be trying to sound like the people that you admire. And we were either subconsciously or consciously, to a degree, trying to sound like... The Beatles or the Beach Boys or Simon and Garfunkel, all the people that we admired. And it had nothing whatsoever to do with Neanderthal Man. And so the album, although it was quite interesting, failed miserably. So <laughs> we stopped. Uh, and essentially, Graham joined us at that point, as I recall, and we became producers. And we became the house band at Strawberry Studios. We kind of forgot about being a group. And we became the people who produced other people um, and played as a band for other people. And we did that for a few years, doing a lot of interesting and mad stuff, anything from football clubs to football teams to ventriloquists and. And God knows what, Uh, I think the best thing we did was an album by a strange couple called Ramesses that was called Space Hymns. It's a a cult album. And that taught taught us a hell of a lot. And then we did, we produced and became the house band for two albums by Neil Sedaka that were recorded at Strawberry Studios. And it was during those sessions that Neil said to us, "You, you guys are great. You should form a group." <laughs> we have been, you know, we have been sort of lost in production land for so long that the idea had not appealed. And suddenly it became obvious that perhaps
2: we should, and so we did. And so then, how did you record the songs on the first album? Were the, those the only songs, or record a hundred and end up with those?
3: No, we never worked like that at all. We worked. <laughs>
2: I don't know, I think a lot of bands
3: at the time worked in a very sort of practical way, but a very linear way. They'd rec- they'd write a bunch of songs and they would lay the backing tracks down for all the songs, and then they would do the vocals for all the songs, and then they would do the overdubs for all the songs, and then they would start playing with it and mixing it and so on and so forth. We didn't work like that. We We, we started a song and we would finish it. And during the making of the track, the recording, we would make decisions about how the finished thing should sound. And we would finish that track, and then we would move on to the next track. And again, take it from A to Z, and the next one from A to Z. I don't think many people worked like that uh, back in those days. But the first 10cc album was done very, very quickly. We'd had a couple of hits, I think, at that point. At least one, Donna. And we were being pressured to come up with something relatively quickly. And we had, I think we had about three weeks to record, to write and record everything. So we just went in the studio and just did it without a great deal of planning and without a great deal of thought. And thank goodness we did it that way because... Everything was everything was done instinctively, intuitively. There was no, none of this, well, we want this to sound like the Beatles. We want this to sound like this. We just did it. We wrote it. We recorded it. We didn't even think about it. And what occurred during the making of that album was a sudden realization that we don't sound like anybody else. We did have an individuality and an approach that didn't seem to be like anybody else at all. And that was because we were free enough to, to do the whole, go through the whole process without referencing anybody.
2: Do you remember what songs
3: were cut first for that album? Well, I think the one that was a hit, I don't know if it was out yet, it was probably Rubber Bullets, which was quite an uptempo thing.
0: This is it, your moment.
1: Offer subject to change, valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply.
2: Okay, so Rubber Bullets, you know, sounded almost like a parody Beach Boys song. How did you guys come up with that sound in that song? Well,
3: there's a lot of strange things going on in there. I mean, a lot of the guitar work is, is recorded with the tape being played at half speed. So it finishes up being double speed <laughs> and lots of things like that we, 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 you know it's crazy it's insane and so we, at that particular time we 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 had nothing to lose we'd had a hit we had nothing to lose we didn't know that that was going to be a, another record yet, another track another single so we were just trying stuff that sounded interesting Uh, because we could, if you remember, we're not down south in the middle of London, where the label can pop by in in 10 minutes and check everything is sort of going smoothly. We were up north, you know, a couple of hundred miles away, so no one was going to drop in to check, so we were pretty much our own men. So we were experimenting to a degree with everything, and the stuff we were writing was kind of bizarre. Um, But the way each of us worked, our taste buds seemed to balance each other extremely well. Lol and I were the arty experimenters, uh, and Graham and Eric were the classic songwriters. For want of a better description of the two teams, and the two balanced out extremely well. And that's—I don't know—that was the sound, that was the approach. That, and we had a we had a great time doing it. it was very hurried, but
2: the the album was really interesting. Well, the album is great, but it has a very distinct sense of humor. Where do you think that came from? Do you think it came from everybody being Jewish or, you know, and having that irreverence? Well, we weren't Jewish. We were Jewish. You know, we were kind of... Okay, like everybody from our generation. Yeah, Jewish. Raised that way. As far as a little guy in the sky, I'm not sure.
3: <laughs> well, we were. I mean, three of us were. Um, I think it was because it was just naturally who we were, and we kind of we weren't really, we we didn't buy into that thing where, you know, you can't have humour in records. That's just not cool, man. You know, we kind of didn't buy into that. But we were more. It was more than humour. It was satire, I think, to a degree. We were we were more like journalists and satirists than we were straightforward songwriters. I think. Everything that we wrote that had an element of humor about it was kind of poking fun at something that was going on at the time, I think. Um, no, we, didn't, we weren't embarrassed about that at all. And how did you decide who sang which song? We didn't. We, we, we had a bizarre uh, audition system. Once the backing track had, uh, had been recorded, each one of us would go in the live room, stand in front of the mic, uh, an attempt to sing the song, and the others would hold up scorecards. You know, and if you did it well, you could carry on, and if you failed miserably, they'd hold up a sign that said next. And then you know you'd come, and the next guy would go, and Graham would try it, and if he was good, you know he got a few minutes to try it. If he wasn't, next. And so on and so forth, and it was very democratic. It, it, it really meant that the person who sang the song was the person who could sing the song the best.
2: Okay, but even so, if you go back to that first album, you know, starts with a fanfare, and it has Elvis-type stuff and doo-wop-type stuff. I mean, it, it was really wild retro with a wink. And was that very conscious? I guess it must have been because you know, if you're minutes into
3: a track, and you know what you're doing. If you're embarrassed by it, you start again. So, it, I think you know, like any any situation like that, you each member of the band is trying to impress all the other members of the band, and we're all trying to have a good time making this stuff. And we were trying to get an album done, so anything that we came up with, we committed to tape. Luckily, most of the stuff that we committed to tape turned out quite well. <laughs> we never did that thing where we'd write hundred songs and record fifty songs and then choose the best twelve. We just wrote until we felt we had something interesting and recorded it. So there was there was never any fat. It was all it was all slimmed down. It was all sinews, and it was all the stuff that we ended up with on the finished albums.
2: And what was your role in the songwriting?
3: Um, I was a songwriter. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't have a role, even though I don't play an instrument. You know, the, the traditional way of writing in those days is you sit with somebody, uh, in my case, mostly Lowell. He would uh, be playing guitar or a keyboard, and we'd play, and I'd sing. And at some point, something would happen a certain phrase would match with a certain set of chords that, that felt like something. And then you would take that a bit further and you play around and then you go, nah, and then you start again. You, you kind of develop develop an inst- instinct as to what, what serves the song best. There's a point in any song, if it's good, and you're always looking for the key the key could be anything, it could be a hook, it could be a phrase, it could be the way a certain melody fits with a chord, it could even be a pause, but it, it tells you something about where that song has to go. And we're always looking for that. I think every songwriter is always looking for that. And it just, you know, it was none of it felt precious to us. There was no sense of, oh, we better get this right. There was none of that because it was all such, such, such a great time, and such we could have been postmen, but we weren't. We were lucky enough to be in a band.
2: Okay, so you work with Law on videos. You work with the three others in Ten CC, and now you're working alone. What is the difference between working in collaboration and working alone?
3: Um, well, there's nobody else there to start with. Obviously, you. Or should I say, I have found it, well, probably the best example of working alone for me, and probably the most fundamentally satisfying thing I've done on my own was a project that I did for the BBC. Um, And this was in, gosh, I think this was in 1985 around about then, or maybe a little bit later, maybe 1988, I was asked by the BBC to come up with an idea for, to celebrate two weeks of environmental concern broadcasting on BBC Two. And I've no idea why they came to me, but, but, but um, they originally wanted to put on a, a kind of Live Aid concert. And I, I thought that was a terrible idea because Live Aid was such a huge phenomenon and so hugely successful. There was no way you could better that. You, there was no way you could duplicate that. So I had an alternative idea which I presented to them, which was, which was called One World, One Voice. And, and the idea was, instead of having all these musicians in one place and filming them, we would start to assemble a piece of music in a part of the world, film it being made, and take an audio and sound crew around the world to different cities, adding different musicians in those cities to this piece of music so that piece of music would grow in scale and in length as we traveled. And I presented this to a group of broadcasters in Europe and they thought it was great. <laughs> so we then had to make it happen. And if you consider the things that could possibly go wrong and the lack of technology that would allow us to do that the way we would do it today in the late 1980s, it's astonishing that we actually got it done, but we did. The, the, the music producer, who was who was key to this working at all um, oh, it was Rupert Hine, who I'm sad to say passed a couple of years ago. Um, but but what a mind! What a, what a great sense of enabling all these musicians to coalesce, to coalesce into one incredible piece of music. Um, and it was my job to film it taking place and my job to edit it. And that, you know, I look back on, on a lot of the stuff I've done and so much of it has used effects and techniques and this, that, and the other. that was pure. That was us filming stuff and using our imaginations with very little equipment, you know, minimal stuff, traveling, grabbing stuff while it was happening. And I look back at that being one of the things I'm most proud of. Another thing that I did was uh, I was involved in um, the formation of an environmental pressure group called ARC. Uh, And I was involved with Chrissy Hine, Matthew Freud, the McCartneys were involved to a degree. A lot of interesting people were involved. Um, And I made a film of uh, a wonderful lady called Dawn French, a UK comedian playing the part of mother earth. And again, that was something that was done for love. It wasn't done for money. Um, So there's a lot of stuff that that I was kind of doing round about this period that brought things out of me that I didn't know that I could do and, and began to form my own set of taste buds. And musically, I guess that really started to come out when I recorded my solo album, Muscle Memory. Uh, the interesting thing being about that album in terms of collaboration um, I put an ask out um, on a channel called um, Pledge Music asking people to send me pieces of music that they thought that I could turn into songs okay and I thought maybe i get about 20, 50 or something I got 286 pieces of music to choose from, which staggered me. And it took a long time to to go through them, but I ended up choosing 12 of these pieces of music and then writing melodies and lyrics for. And once again, that that was a huge change for me. It again, it told me that I could do something that up to that point, I never knew that I could. Because I was collaborating with people it's just that they weren't there in the room and asking me to make them coffee
2: right so you work with Jonathan King what's your experience with Jonathan King
3: Jonathan King was amazing he was the, he was the guy that signed 10CC. right um, he was great I mean he put out our first two albums and allowed us to do what the hell we liked pretty much He had a very very a very very succinct and commercial brain he knew which were the singles and he was great he he came up with the name of the band um he came down to hear i think it must have been donna uh, the first recording um, from london and he told us that he'd had a dream the night before where he was standing outside the the hammersmith odeon and up in lights Above the venue, it said, uh, appearing tonight for one night only, 10cc. And he said, that's, that's who you guys are. We didn't have a name. You know, we were just still these production guys. And that's where, that's where the name came from, not that other story, which you probably know.
2: So that other story has no truth to it whatsoever.
3: None whatsoever. It's probably better after dinner conversation supposed to before dinner conversation but but it's simply not true and even if it was it's a pretty bad show for four guys
2: so literally the dream just said 10 cc
3: yeah appearing for one night only tonight 10 cc it's interesting that, that when we started to tour, tour when we started to tour America <clears throat> we toured in the south and nobody understood what it meant and we ended up in some venues being billed as the Tennessee boys <laughs>
2: Okay, on the second album, my favorite song is one that you're heavily involved with, Somewhere in Hollywood. Can you tell me about the composition and recording of that track? We were getting
3: a bit more ambitious in the kind of songs that we liked to write. And we wanted to write something that was longer, and we wanted to write something that didn't stick to the verse, chorus, verse, chorus, middle eight, fade. Um, format and we lol had a, a particular piano part and I started singing and it took a while to write um, and it felt like we'd moved forward a notch uh, with that particular song I I re-recorded it recently, well not that recently probably about five or six years ago and uh, made a film of it Um for Graham Gorman, who tours his version of 10CC. But it's one of my favorite songs, one of the best songs I think we ever wrote for 10CC. I don't know. It just felt like something, a great leap forward, if you like, in terms of our songwriting skills. Well,
2: it was epic, and it had a heaviness, but it also had humorous lyrics, like a dog up in Beverly Hills. It's crazy. yeah. And there's a sort, there is a tap dancing
3: section in the middle, which is me banging shoes on the floor and all sorts of things like that. Yeah, it, well, it was, but it was a joy. It was a sort of difficult song to sing live, I should say.
2: Now, supposedly on the next album, you switched to Mercury, the original soundtrack, I'm Not In Love. Supposedly you were, had a lot of influence in the sound and the recording of that. Can you give me your perspective?
3: Yeah, interestingly, I'm Not In Love we'd already recorded that song um, towards the beginning of uh, that whole recording, that whole group of recording sessions for, for the album. And we've recorded it, it as a kind of cheesy nova. And it just didn't work. It was like, it was, it was crap. And we knew it was crap, but we knew that the song had something. But we did not know how it should be done. So we kind of parked it. We put it on a shelf and carried on recording the other songs. Um, And eventually we came back to it. And, you know, we were sat around discussing how we should approach it. And I said, (coughs) excuse me, out of desperation, probably more than anything else, why don't we do it all in voices? The whole thing in voices, like a tsunami of voices. A little bit like the sound that was... In a lot of 2001 Space Odyssey, that kind of haunting,
2: haunting vocals. You know, word is that that was your idea. Is that true?
3: Yeah. The technique wasn't necessarily my idea, but the the, the vision for it, the audio vision for it was my idea. We then had to figure out how we would do it. Um, And what we were after was this sound that, You know, if you sing a note, you have to stop and breathe, and you don't want to hear that. So LOL came up with the idea of doing it as a set of complex loops. Um, And so we set to work doing this, uh, and it took quite a while. We had to make a loop with all of the singing, multi-tracked, mix it down, create a loop for every note of every chord in the song. And then we had to transfer this onto the multi-track tape recorder. And then we would play the loops back using the faders on the recording console the way you would use the keys on a keyboard. And that was that was the technique. No one had done that before. And we'd already recorded a backing track for it. So, And we never thought we'd end up using the backing track, but it all just began to fall together the way things do. Sometimes, if you're lucky, in a series of recording sessions, everything you add makes everything better. And this was just that. And again, like when we shot um, Rocket for Herbie Hancock, we listened back to what we'd done. We thought, we didn't think they're going to fucking kill us this time. We thought this is this is this is very, very good, but it's six minutes long. They're never gonna play it. And so when we presented it to the label, lo and behold, they said, Yeah, it's fabulous, but we're gonna release Life as a Mini instead. And to this day I'm pissed off because they released Bohemian Rhapsody. I don't think it was the same label, but whoever Queen with had the balls to release something as daring as Bohemian Rhapsody, which, again, was a landmark in recording, and stayed at number one for God knows how many millennia. So they should have had the balls to put this out first, but they didn't. But nevertheless, when it did come out, it was huge. What exactly was the gizmo? The gizmo? That's going back in time. Um before 10 cc existed, probably round about Hot Lakes, man. Time while we were doing the album. We wanted some string parts and some orchestral parts on some of the songs. And, you know, there weren't many string players. In Manchester at the time, there was the Halle Orchestra who were very grand and very, you know, sort of pop songs. <laughs> we don't do that sort of thing. Um, and they were expensive, and they worked very strange hours. And therefore, we didn't particularly like the sound of the mellotron. We wanted proper string sounds. So we thought, okay, a guitar is a string instrument. Is there a way of playing the strings to get a sustain, a bowing sound, a sustained bowing sound from this instrument? instead of hiring a bunch of string players and an arranger. And so we messed around. We, I remember it was Lowell's Fender Stratocaster. And the first experiment was to, to, to get an electric drill and put a rubber eraser on the end of the drill and hold it against the strings. And it made an infernal racket, but for maybe about two seconds, it said to us that this, this might work. It sort of went, you know, it was going. And there was something there that, 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 that told us that this would work. We found our way to uh, the engineering department of um, the college in Manchester, the College of Science and Technology, I think, and, and a couple of guys who were prepared to build us a prototype based on this idea that might actually work. Um, guy's name was John McConnell, lovely guy and I forget the other guy's name, I'm sorry about that Um, and they did, they built us the prototype that was used on any recordings that uh, the gizmo featured on um, including all of Consequences Um, but at a certain point uh, we were told that or oh, it, was, it was suggested to us that this beco- could become a commercial item, it could become an effect, like an effects pedal, that one could sell on the open market. So we went to America to meet somebody, at a company called Musitronics, who actually produced the gizmo. Unfortunately, it, the materials that were used to create the constant bowing sound weren't good enough, um, for it to work consistently. And it would, it was affected by weather, by, by temperature, by how it had been transported from one place to the other, and also not insignificantly by the fact you had to screw it to your guitar body. And it came out on the market just at the time when cheap synthesizers were also coming out on the market. And they were much more reliable than the gizmo was. The gizmo was like something Da Vinci might have actually created. Um, And it didn't actually sell. It's become a bit of a cult. A number of different artists used it on, on their recordings, including Paul McCartney, including Susie and the Banshees, numerous people but it never became a commercially successful device. Over the last maybe five years, a company in the States has started to produce them again in small quantities. So it might have its day again at some point.
0: This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global.
1: Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply.
2: Now, from the exterior, it was said that you left 10cc to make an album with the Gizmo. What really happened there? And why did you leave 10cc? And how would you end up making a triple album? Well, it was initially, it wasn't meant to be a triple album.
3: Initially... Initially, the idea was we'd, we'd invented this thing and we didn't really get to use it and experiment with it and, and test its potential within the context of 10cc. So we thought, you know, I think you know, we had a break from recording and touring and we thought, well, let's book some time at Strawberry. Let's book ourselves in there for three weeks and see what this thing can do, which is exactly what we did. And, and we had such a, a great time doing that and making the kind of music that we hadn't even attempted to make before, that we wanted to continue to do that. So the idea was, our initial idea was, okay, guys, we're doing something that, you know, we really think is interesting and worthwhile. Just give us a little bit more time and we'll make our single album um, and we'll put it out and then we'll come back, you know, to the group and we'll carry on. But that... we we were on a roll by then 10cc was on a roll and there were you know we had a road crew we had responsibilities we we had to put our 10cc album out and 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 unfortunately it was one of those situations where it was we had to do one thing or the other we weren't really given a choice to we weren't allowed to do it essentially we weren't mature enough as a group of people to understand that, you know, in order to to grow as individuals as well as a, as a unit, we had to grow individually as well musically, and then bring that back to the table for the bigger picture. We that wasn't going to happen in this context. So, you know, we 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 had numerous meetings about it, and and we we were given an ultimatum. You know. We we have to do a 10cc album instead. Let's do, let's let's do that. And uh, so we paused, and, and Eric and Graham had written uh, a particular song. I forget which song it was. I don't know if it was the things we do for love, but it was it was a ballad like that. And we all assembled in the studio, and you know, with a view to listening to to what was what had been written and to think about starting a Tennessee C album album they played as a song and Lol and I looked at each other and we thought oh god we don't want to do this anymore and, and that was it it was, it was as simple as that we, we just we found access to a way of working that was thrilling us And really, that's what 10CC were all about for the first three years or so. It was all about the thrill of doing it, not the success. The thrill of the four of us in the studio making music was what it was about. And that somehow got diluted. But we found it again.
2: And we wanted to continue doing that. Yes. And then... 10 CC, which sounds different now, you can definitely hear the difference between the post you and LOL albums, <coughs> sound different. And one can argue the albums are not as good, but they're gigantic hits on that record. So, how did you feel being on the uh, outside of that?
3: We didn't have a problem that we, we our thing has ceased to become about hits. Um, uh-huh. it was never really about hits. I think the fact that 10cc had hits was a bonus you know we made stuff that we wanted to make and a hell of a lot of people liked them wow you know what's not to like um but now we were we we're in a different frame of
2: mind we, we were
3: we were artists
2: if you go back to that era royalty rates were low there were four people in the band but the money can be in publishing but there were multiple writers do you get any money from those songs? Have you sold the rights? What's the status of that?
3: God, you're going, you're going back a long way. We didn't even think about money in those Well, you cases. know whether the money's coming into your account or not. Oh, yeah, the money was coming into our account, but usually a song was written by two people, three people at most. There were never any songs, Tennessee C songs particularly, that were written by four, as far as I recall. So even though the royalty rate was small, It was, you know, it kept us alive. I don't think we ever got really rich off it, but it kept us alive.
2: Yeah, but how about today in 2022? Are you still getting royalties?
3: Yep, but there's a whole new element of the music business, as we well know, with people like Hypnosis and Sony and goodness, who else, who have created a new system whereby us, shall we say, more mature artists can earn money sooner. Rather than later in dribs and drabs. So, yeah, that is uh,
2: that is very helpful. So, did you make a deal with uh, Hypnosis or one of its competitors? I did. And did you go with Hypnosis? Yeah. So, Hypnosis, so essentially they say you can get it. I know Merck says you can get a 10% payout, whatever. So, the money you got from Merck. You live another 20 years, well invested, that money can carry you? Or you got to work for a living?
3: Oh, I got to work for a living. Jesus, I'm not Neil Young. I'm not Bob Dylan. Uh, I, you know, let's just say it took the edge off.
2: And so at this late date, what keeps you creating?
3: I love it. It's what I do. I I, I wake up in the morning. And if I'm lucky, I've got an idea in my head. And it could be a, for a film. I've written two film scripts, two screenplays over the last few years, one with another guy and one on my own. And one of my big things is to make these these two movies, direct these two movies. I've also joined um, a group of humans, as I said. I've also joined Athena, the games company. I'm constantly, excuse me, pushing myself to keep working, not just to earn money, but because I love pushing myself into areas where I think I can do good work. I enjoy doing good work. Um, so there are a number of projects on the horizon, a number of self-initiated projects, that uh, things that I would dearly like to do, um, that I'm pushing to get done, two of which are these two film scripts. So uh, unfortunately we were, we were really close So going into pre-production before COVID hit for one of the films. Uh, And that's sort of been on the back back burner, so I'm I'm sort of pushing to try and get that to the fore again. Um, The other is a low-budget film about media in the 21st century, which is a bit hardcore, so I'm trying to get that off the ground. But it's up here. It's up here that counts. It's it's keeping busy up up there. You know, it's so easy not to.
2: Well, let me just ask. You make an album like Muscle Memory, you put a lot of time, but the music business has changed and it's much harder to be heard than it was before. Does that make it harder to do it or just as long as you can get your idea down, you're happy? Uh
3: Yes, the latter. For me, it was about just getting the idea. It was about proving it proving it to myself, proving that I could actually do it and actually do something that wasn't just 20 minutes of fluff, it was, you know, it had a little bit of weight to it. The lyrics were good, the tunes were good, the exercise was good. The whole process was was elevating for me, um, it still had the mystery, still had the magic.
2: Okay, so you still have things in the pipeline, but at this point, if you look back, what are you most proud of?
3: Across the whole lifetime? Absolutely. Give me two. Two, Jesus. Well, the album is one. Muscle memory is one. Um, one World, One Voice is another. That's two. Um, the first 10cc album, maybe. A three. And a number of different music videos. If I can have a four, which is, you know, I did a number of videos for you too, which I'm very proud of. Uh, But possibly Rocket is the one that stands out um, head and shoulders above the other because of what I was saying before, because it was so bizarre and nobody knew what the hell it was. And it did a huge amount, a number of
2: different levels. Okay, you mentioned that you that you would like to do a movie about uh, media. So you grew up in an analog world. We live in a digital internet world. You've seen both. What do you think about where we are today? Uh, it's complex.
3: It's fascinating. Um, I, I don't know. I've had a... I, I, I dislike the idea of technology for technology's sake. And the thing, I accept it and I use it um, because it can give me things that analog could never give me. But then again, there's a certain foolishness to it. And, and probably the best example of that is the original version of the video that we did for our Godly and song Cry for instance, was was edited in an analog fashion, And the mixes going from one face to the other took place using what they used to call paddles, which was a handheld stick that you moved from the top to the bottom, and you could actually feel physically the mix taking place. Uh, That doesn't happen anymore. It's done by a lot of number crunching. And you watch, if it's not right, the numbers are crunched again. But there is now two things that has happened. Um, One being the fact that one can lose a physical contact with the material you're playing with. And that applies to music as well. You know, you could be using a drum sample instead of playing the drums, which is fine. But there's a gap appearing between the result and the performance and the actual process of making something. Um, And the time it takes, I mean, to use video editing as an example, the time it takes to do an edit of a music video has expanded. It usually takes me, say, at least three days to do something in digital mode that I used to be able to do in one. And that is because if you're editing digitally, you can defer making final decisions for a long time. You can try a shot here. You can extend it. You can move it backwards, forwards, slow it down, speed it up, add color, remove color. You don't have to make a decision. Whereas in the analog world of video editing, you had to decide where you want things to be. You had to think, you had to use your instincts, and you had to use your mind. Um, and you did, <laughs> and it still worked. What you've gained in digital is quality and the potential for trying lots of alternatives, but it does take longer. So you win and you lose, but the bottom line is this is the world that we live in, so I've chosen to to use an American expression to embrace it and take it as far as I can and use it to its best
2: advantage. Well, Kevin, thanks so much for spending your time with us today and giving us insight into your long career. Really interesting. So thanks so much. My pleasure. I enjoyed it. Till next time, this is Bob Westlake.